This is BT Techno, a regular podcast series for financial advisors wanting to remain at the forefront of strategy, regulatory and industry news. Hello and welcome to today's BT Techno podcast. My name is Sarah Conti and I'm the Senior Manager, Technical and Regulatory for BT. I'm part of the BT Technical Services team, a team of experts available to answer any advice, technical queries you may have about strategies for your clients. Today, we have two special guests joining our podcast to discuss the impacts of the design and distribution obligations, which commenced on the 5th of October, and the exposure draft legislation on the Retirement Income Covenant. Jeremy Cooper is the Chairman of Retirement Income at Challenger, and Richard Denham is the Head of Client Solutions and Retirement at Fidelity. Jeremy, Richard, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. But retirement trends are changing. Australians are living longer and our demographics are shifting. According to the 2021 Intergenerational Report, by 2060, Australia will have just 2.7 taxpayers for every person over 65, compared to the 3.9 taxpayers we currently have. Our superannuation system is still maturing. This year marks the beginning of the increase of SG from 9.5% to 10%, with its legislated rate of 12% by 2025. Around 16 million Australians already collectively own around $3 trillion in superannuation assets. 75% of this sits inside the accumulation phase. This is the fourth largest stock of retirement investments in the world, and it's projected to increase from 157% of GDP to around 244% of GDP by 2060. Now, while the increase in SG can account for some of that growth, perhaps another factor is the increase in labour force participation. For those over 65, this is due largely to greater life expectancy and better health, as well as greater availability of part-time and less physically demanding jobs. Carriage of, of retirement advice would be fundamental for the prosperity of Australians. The changing nature of our population, coupled with the commencement of new legislation, will see retirement advice transform. And certainly the design and distribution obligations and the recently released exposure draft legislation on the Retirement Income Covenant will impact the retirement advice advisors provide to their clients. Richard, I might start with you. Um, given the, the new design and distribution obligations have commenced, can you give our listeners an overview of the obligations and what impact will advisors see because of these? Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, thanks, Sarah. Um, so just a very quick overview of, of uh, DDO or the design and distribution obligations. Um, as you said, it's a, a, a new regulatory regime that um, went live in Australia on the 5th of October. Uh, and it's for the retail market, um, and it's really um, the essence of it is um, to improve outcomes for investors um, and to reduce the number of um, unsuitable products that um, that continue to exist uh, in the market. Uh, so, in essence, it's uh, it's all about product issuers um, such as fund managers and uh, life insurers. Um, so product issuers and distributors um, will need to ensure that uh, products are fit for purpose. Uh, they'll need to take reasonable steps to ensure that products that reach the retail market uh, are suitable for their needs. And so um, what we'll see is a more rigorous uh, product design and governance framework um, you know, from product issuers uh, going forwards. 
Um, uh, so for each new product um, or each existing product that exists, there'll be something called a target market uh, determination, TMD. Uh, so one of these will be produced for each product, um, setting out the definition uh, of what the target market um, uh, is for that particular product. And that might be um, setting out parameters such as the, the investor's time horizon, the type of holding, is it a core or satellite holding within their portfolio, you know, what the investor's risk tolerance might be, uh, etc. And most uh, investment managers uh, or issuers will be using the FSC template for their TMD, target market determination. Uh, so there'll be quite a bit of consistency in the format um, of that document um, across the industry. Um, one of the key um, elements of uh, the DDO is uh, that issuers and distributors will need to monitor for something called significant dealings. Uh, and these are where investors uh, who are investing into a particular product um, actually fall outside the target market. Um, and, I, and I guess the regulator is going to be looking for, um, you know, uh, potential issues uh, going forwards uh, with that. Um, so this needs to be monitored and reviewed, um, and significant dealings need to be reported back to uh, the issuer. Um, uh, also, complaints need to be monitored. So, any um, uh, any complaints coming in on a product, um, you know, need to be reported back to the issuer um, and dealt with uh, appropriately. Um, and the distributors, such as the platforms, that uh, they will also need to uh, report back to the issuer if these significant dealings are seen to occur. Um, and what the outcome of these, uh, you know, monitoring of significant dealings uh, and broader activity around complaints, etc., may potentially lead to changes in the product, um, you know, if these are considered, uh, you know, uh, necessary or, or appropriate. Uh, so I think in essence we'll see a, you know, a better alignment of, um, you know, products uh, to the needs, uh, you know, of, of consumers, of investors uh, going forward. In terms of the implications for advisors, you know, obviously uh, highly relevant for this conversation. And um, uh, what I might suggest is, um, you know, there is a there is a guide that's been produced by ASIC um, uh, for uh, advisors. So um, I, I uh, you know, strongly suggest um, listeners go and onto the ASIC website and, and download the uh, the advisors guide to DDO. Um, uh, but just to cover in brief uh, the elements of of that guidance. Um, Issuers, um, yeah, product issuers will be asking investors on the application form if personal financial advice has been obtained, uh, and if so, um, then that investor is deemed to be in the target market. So this is really, you know, consistent with the best interest duty. Um, however, where it, it, it really is a an impact for advisors is uh, if, if if you, as an advisor, are only providing either general advice or execution-only services. Then you will need to you do actually fall within the framework of DDO, um, so you'll need to satisfy the reasonable steps requirement, uh, and so you'll need to refer to the TMD target market determination, and check if the clients who are investing in a particular product fall within the definition of the target market. Um, uh, and you know, in addition to that, you know, um, <clears throat> if you are effectively acting as a distributor for a particular product, you will then need to um, follow the reporting requirements of, um, uh, you know, within the definition of uh, of the DDO. So there will be some reporting requirements back to the issuer. 
Um, and I suppose the one final thing to mention is, you know, there will be some products out there that are issued that are quite complex um, or maybe deemed to be particularly high risk and so can only be sold with advice. And so the product issues will uh, alert uh, on that. Um, and so <clears throat> the distribution conditions, you know, are effectively uh, imposed on, on those particular kinds of products. Um, so, yeah, that, in essence, that's a, a quick summary of uh, DDO and the implications for, for advisors. Right. Look, the government are also consulting on the exposure draft legislation that will introduce a retirement income covenant for superannuation trustees. Um, and this draft has introduced some changes to what we expected. Jeremy, can you talk through these and what they mean for advisors? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Um, so a covenant um, is, a, is a sort of fancy legal word for a duty that's going to apply to, um, to all APRA-regulated super funds, but, but not self-managed funds. Now, that's at least by assets two-thirds of the, of the market and, and by headcount, in other words, the number of people involved, um, they'll predominantly be um, in the sector where there will be this retirement income covenant. So what is it? It's, it's really just a, a strategy that all of these funds are going to have to have to help members achieve and balance these three objectives that I'm going to mention. The first one is to maximise retirement income. This doesn't mean just higher returns. It means more focus on consuming capital for ex, extra spending. And it will be the strategy will have to work uh, for the whole of the retirement period. So that's out to life expectancy and possibly even even beyond that. Secondly, it'll have to involve the management of risks to the sustainability and uh, stability of that income. And this now explicitly in the draft includes a strategy for managing uh, inflation risk, which um, uh, we'll talk about a little bit more in a, in a minute. And then lastly, uh, this is a quite familiar one, uh, as we currently have with the account-based pension, um, a, flex, a flexible access to retirement savings if they're needed for um, unscheduled spending um, and so on. So those are the three uh, components of the, uh, of the strategy that uh, funds uh, are going to have to have. And this will, in my view, um, lead to the, the creation of uh, innovative products. In fact, um, I, I rarely do challenger ads, but it just so happens that early this week we released uh, five new or a new uh, market-linked annuity with five different uh, asset mixes that you can you can have, including equities, indices, and so on, within a lifetime annuity structure. So that is definitely for the Australian market a innovative product, and and there'll be more to come. No question about that, in in my view. And what this will mean is that retirees will have um, better retirement paychecks. So really, if you think about it, the retirement phase to date, has really only been a tax concept. If you um, satisfy certain conditions, you're um, of the right age, or you've satisfied a condition of release or something, you can move into the retirement phase, which is really only um, a tax envelope. That, that will definitely change. And for advisors, um, even though the covenant's not going to bind them directly, so they are not explicitly covered by this um, this new regime. But if every large super fund in the country needs to have a, a strategy, advisors are inevitably going to be having more conversations with their clients about this. You know, should I be participating in this? You know, is it right for me? 
And over time, the ideas behind the covenant, that is managing longevity risk, um, greater focus on cash flows and sustainability and stability of income, then they'll inevitably those ideas will start to influence the advice that uh, advisors give the clients, the sort of queries that advisors get. And the speed and direction of uh, the change will depend on a, a number of factors. So member choices, market forces, the extent to which new products arrive, and also, in truth, the, uh, the way that the regulators, particularly APRA, uh, implement the, uh, the regime. So I think the Covenant really is an important step, actually, to, um, to, help, to help the um, uh, retirement phase of super meet the needs of, of Australians as well as the accumulation phase. And um, I think at this time in uh, the economic cycle, I think uh, giving retirees more confidence to spend is probably going to be good for the wider economy as well. Yeah. Look, Richard, what's your take on this? Yeah, well, just, just really to add to what Jeremy's um, already mentioned there, um, I would certainly say it's a welcome development um, you know, across the industry, um, I think it's indicating the government is wanting to in increase the focus on the post-retirement phase, which uh, previously has not really benefited from nearly as much competition and innovation as the accumulation phase of, uh, of, of superannuation. Um, if we cast our minds back to uh, almost a year ago now with the retirement income review, um, you know, uh, what, some of the key sort of um, outcomes from that were that, uh, you know, retirees are just not spending down their retirement savings uh, nearly as quickly as perhaps they ought. There's a sort of a natural caution, perhaps a lack of confidence from, from retirees. Um, and that that's, uh, has led to balances at the end of life, um, which are shown to be much larger than you might expect. Uh, and uh, so it's clear that retirees are perhaps being unnecessarily frugal uh, and perhaps not having the quality of life they could have. Um, so really, this, this um, you know, uh, the, the Retirement Income Covenant is looking to um, uh, increase the, the degree of innovation. Um, you know, the government is, is helping to force this issue um, and looking to increase the availability of um, what you, you would call fit-for-purpose uh, solutions and products uh, in the retirement phase. And although um, you know, the, the, um, the covenant will be a voluntary uh, code, um, it will ultimately, you know, um, we would expect produce uh, and provide better outcomes for members uh, so that they can you know, spend more uh, freely and have more confidence um, in their retirement. Yeah, look, both of you have talked to that point about, you know, um, spending patterns of retirees. You know, do you think that the settings within the system are, in fact, aligned to retirees being more confident to consume their savings in retirement, or do you think that there needs to be further enhancements made to the system? Yeah, well, look, I think it's, um, I guess, as I hinted to a moment ago, um, you know, it's clear that retirees up to now in aggregate have been perhaps overly cautious in their in their spending. Um, uh, we've actually done some research recently, which we're adding to, uh, right, you know, at, at, this, at this time, actually, um, uh, around financial advice in retirement, and uh, certainly there's a, we've seen a huge benefit to the level of confidence and control that retirees feel when they're benefiting from financial advice. 
So I think it's fair to say that the covenant um, will probably benefit those investors who are in super funds and perhaps not receiving advice currently. Um, in terms of the settings, um, I guess the the key one I've mentioned is the uh, the minimum drawdown rate uh, that is that is set in legislation, um, uh, and the minimum rate you know it, it starts at normally it starts at four uh, percent you know below age 65, and then above age 65 it goes to five, and then six, and so on. You know in increments. Um, uh, currently, those rates have been halved by the government. Um, you know, given the, the sort of the volatility in markets, you know, last year. Um, uh, but those those minimum drawdown rates tend to be taken as a yardstick by retirees as the rate that they'll draw down on their age, their, their pension. Um, and so it's potentially the case that retirees are again taking the cue from those rates and, and just um, being very cautious and, and perhaps spending a little uh, a little bit too little for what would otherwise be a more comfortable retirement for them. Um, so I guess it could be the case um, that these rates will be reviewed. They're, they're certainly reverting in July next year back to their normal rates, uh, having you know from the, the, the reduced rates that were, were set over the last uh, two years. Um, but beyond that, I think um, uh, we'll need, you know, uh, it, it may well be something the government will look at more closely. Yeah. Um, Jeremy, one directive that you mentioned before was that the exposure draft has that requirement now for trustees to manage inflation risk. Um, I'm really keen to get your insights into how that might be done. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Firstly, just a couple of remarks about this. Uh, it's great to see that this has been included because maintaining uh, retirees' spending power, uh, you know, is a key part of any uh, retirement income plan, particularly for retirees who are not going to be getting a lot of age pension. As I'll explain in a minute, the age pension sort of deals with inflation rather nicely. So it's really for, for those sorts of um, the part pensioners and above. And just, just clicking over the number, so even at the sort of rate that we, we've sort of grown to know and love, a sort of 2.5% relatively benign rate of inflation. After a 25-year retirement, what that's done is, if it were at that rate, is to cut your spending power in half. So the loaf of bread that costs three bucks at the start of retirement uh, costs four dollars fifty after 25 years. So, how, how do you manage inflation risk? Well, I've mentioned the the age pension for those who are entitled to it, and a lot of people um, believe that that equities are the best way of doing this. And look. Um, it's, it's, there's some logic there. There's no question about that. Um, you know, an equity is essentially a claim on on some some real assets in the in the business that's owned by the company. And many companies can um, deal with inflation by just um, passing on price rate increases to customers. So these, the, the, it can be right to to assume that you know over the long term equities are, are going to provide you with sufficient returns to beat inflation, but it's, it's certainly not always the case. It sort of depends on the type and extent of the um, inflation. And, and so in a serious inflation environment, and I'm certainly not suggesting that we're going into one of those, but ultimately equity markets get to the point where they can't properly value the, the future cash flows of the business because they can't work out what the discount rate is. And at that point, the... Um, Equity risk premium is forced up and, and share prices go down. So let's look at some of the other ways to hedge inflation. Um, asset hedging, so in other words, buying uh, 
a property, maybe a commercial property that's got CPI rent increases. Uh, cash, oddly enough, is, is pretty reasonable inflation hedge because you, you're getting the variable, um, well, certainly in a, in a variable environment, you're getting you're getting rates going up and, and um, hedging inflation in that way. Um, real commodities, you can then insure against it. In other words, the CPI index lifetime annuity uh, would be uh, an example of the insurance strategy. And then it's an unpleasant one, but, but effectively your drawdown or spending strategy. So for those who can, um, who can afford it and have, and have got sustainable um, income streams, you know, one way of dealing with inflation is, is simply to spend more. But, um, you know, that um, is, is not for everybody. And um, you'd be you'd be potentially better off, of course. You know that that's your your last <laughs> the last straw, really. So using some of the other techniques that I've mentioned might be the might be the way to go. Yeah, but Richard, what's your view on the inclusion of managing inflation risk in the covenant? Yeah, no, thanks, Sarah. Yeah, I'm certainly welcome uh, the you know the fact that the exposure draft mentions inflation explicitly, and, and in fact, it mentions. All of the um, uh, the investment risks. Um, so it's it's great that um, there's um, you know some focus given on on that. You know, given that you know it's a risk management exercise. You know, advising retirees in uh, in their retirement phase is, is very much a risk management exercise. Um, in terms of inflation, it's um, you know one of those that can be easy to forget about. And you know, in more recent years, with inflation being so benign. Um, uh, and it's quite often not sort of front of mind when planning for the future, particularly amongst you know, uh, the investors themselves rather than advisors. Um, but it's it certainly, um, given how low it's been for a number of years and been falling, um, you know, it, it's, it's often not front of mind. But of course, as Jeremy rightly said, it, over the over the longer term, it can be a very significant issue, and spending power, um, you know, uh, will will inevitably reduce over, over time. Um, and it's a hard one to manage against. You know, I, I think Jeremy mentioned that it's, it's, it's nothing that really um, manages against uh, you know this risk precisely. Um, and a further complication is that retiring inflation is actually very different, or can be quite different to CPI, the, the common measure of inflation. Um, you know, so the set of uh, you know goods and services that retirees consume over their their life will. Uh, Quite probably be quite different to CPI, and that will change over the course of their retirement as well. Um, there are some um, ways of hedging, as, as Jeremy mentioned. So index-linked annuities can provide a direct hedge to CPI, but not to necessarily to uh, retiree inflation. Um, inflation-linked bonds are also a, a direct hedge for CPI. They're, they're also quite expensive and quite hard for the retail investor to, to purchase, so not not uh, not um, not well used. Uh, look, at, you know, uh, equities are often used, um, uh, but um, yeah, the relationship is, is not precise. You know, you don't get a a nice neat um, hedge over, especially over short periods of time. Um, <clears throat> then be can be quite a divergence in, in the path of returns from, from equities uh, and, and CPI. Um, but you can argue, as, as, as indeed, as Jeremy mentioned, that you know, the benefit of equity you know, over the longer term, um, it can produce um, a, a good inflation hedge 
um, and is often used to, in fact, exceeding for inflation, um, which it has done. Um, you know, equity returns generally outpace inflation with a premium called the equity risk premium uh, over time. But in the short term, you know, it's a much more um, uh, volatile sort of experience. So, yeah, certainly welcome the um, the focus on inflation. And it, it's uh, it's a great um, uh, you know uh, innovation to to actually be managing more directly against it. Yeah, yeah, it does sound like a good thing. Um, one other thing I wanted to talk through was the fact that SMSS have been carved out of this. So does that make them more attractive to clients and advisors now? Jeremy? Sarah, look, uh, well, Smurfs, as I call them, uh, have been carved out. I, I, I wouldn't have thought that the, the presence or absence of the covenant would affect somebody's decision. It's not kind of like this great arbitrage. Oh, great! You know, now that the covenant's not going to apply, I'll rush in and and get a Smurf. Um, I think the quick answer is really uh, as to why the government's done this is is really um, the self in self managed. So if you think about what self managed funds are, they overwhelmingly have two members. Now I know the government's just created a regime where you can have up to six, but the reality at the moment is that. Two is by far the, the, the most common st structure, typically a, a husband and wife. And um, when you think about that, they don't really need a strategy offered to them by their fund because they are the fund. So it's really a, a case of, you know, that this this covenant remedy, you know, just might not be the appropriate instrument in the self-managed sector. But the point is they're not getting any special treatment because, um, you know, they're still still sub subject to whatever minimum drawdown rules there are. And, and even the Self-Managed Super Association has been saying, hang on, don't, just because we've been, the sector's been exempted from this requirement, don't forget the principles be, behind the, the covenant that are still just as, as relevant. Uh, it just wasn't helpful to impose uh, that particular uh, covenant on the sector. I will say, though, I think the Smurf sector probably needs a, a slightly different type of covenant and uh, which wasn't on the table um, under the uh, under this proposal, but most people don't realise the fact that Smurfs are not a whole of life solution. Now, I'm not anti-Smurf. In fact, my own Smurf turns uh, is in its 23rd year of life this year, so I'm a <laughs> I'm a self-managed guy. But uh, they're not a whole of life solution. What I mean there is um, they don't go so well as you get deep into retirement and what. Retirement income specialists call the, the frail stage. Now, this might be 80 plus or something like that, where you know there's a considerable amount of cognitive decline going on. You may have lost a, a spouse, um, and all of a sudden, the the Smurf structure, the strategy, is is really not um, not right for you. And uh, having a strategy about what you do when you get to that point. Um, you know, maybe it's a, an arrangement with your advisors or your your attorneys under an enduring power, something like that. I think the smooth sector needs that rather than the retirement income covenant. Yeah. Richard, did you have any views on this? Yeah, look, I think Jeremy's covered most of it there. Um, and I certainly agree, you know, whilst the SMSFs are not formally covered, um, uh, it, it will be very um, expedient for them to still have a plan about what to do uh, in retirement. Um, they just wouldn't have to formally document it. Um, 
but I think it, it could be useful for them, you know, for the SMS service themselves to actually think about the key elements that are in the, um, the, the uh, retirement income covenant, um, and that might form a good basis for them to think about um, their, their retirement needs, you know, around the, you know, the higher levels of income, the sustainability and stability of that income, and, and access to capital, which are the three sort of core tenets of, of the of the covenant itself. Um, uh, but yet, SMSS will still have to adopt an asset allocation approach that, that is fit for purpose when they're in that decumulation phase, um, and, the, and the types of investment that would be in there would need to deliver the right kinds, uh, kinds of outcomes. Yeah, look, a final question uh, for both of you. Retirement advice is changing. Uh, what are the trends you're seeing in this space? Well, Sarah, uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the covenant's only going to accentuate this, but I think what we're seeing is that, um, you know, there's a, there's a distinction between um, pre-retirement advice and retirement advice itself. And so in, in retirement, one trend I'm seeing is the... Uh, emergence of specialists uh, and what I call con concio service providers, so uh, businesses that um, help people access the age pension, uh, businesses that have tools that uh, sort of overlay your retirement experience. There's even a, a business that um, helps you access and explain the, the pension loan scheme. So that's, a, that's an interesting uh, little um, micro economy going on there. Uh, I think there's an ever-increasing uh, sort of focus on the, the human skills in retirement, that it um, can be a pretty challenging uh, time for people, particularly where there's been an involuntary uh, retirement, in other words, a retirement due to ill health or loss of a job or, or something like that. And that data and research shows that that can often be the start of a you know, fairly unhappy uh, retirement, and so advisors are kind of getting... To grips with that. I think also advisors are saying, well, you know, what sort of retirement um, advice, you know, who's sitting on the other side of the desk from me? So a person who's single in retirement is a very, very different thing from, from a couple. And then you've got couples where one of them is caring for the other and they have very distinct um, psychological and, and financial needs, I believe. And I think also Aged care um, is becoming an increasing part of advice. It's being seen, I've heard advisors talk about it as the sort of second retirement, so it's got a whole different set of emotional and, and indeed financial, but largely sort of emotional um, things attaching to it. And, and aged care is really fascinating. I mean, it's got a very uh, wide meaning, and, and, and also I've had one advisor explain to me that because the choices are so diverse, it just creates additional complexity, and, and that's where the advice comes in. Yeah, sure, there are financial features to it, but having somebody who understands that ecosystem and how it works, and it's fascinating, you know, the figures are that around about 1.3 million Australians are getting aged care right now, but only 200,000 of those are actually living in residential care, and the rest of them are a diverse range of in-home and, and other sorts of uh, arrangements. So uh, I think the closing remark there is that advice in, in that particular area is about far more than just the money. Um, Richard? Yes, yeah, certainly we've um, had quite a few discussions with, with advisors 
um, you know, in, in recent times. And, you know, some of the trends we're seeing are, um, you know, increasing recognition of the retirement-specific uh, risks. Um, and we spoke about inflation risk quite a bit already, but there's also sequencing or market risk um, and longevity risk. But, you know, those three or four sort of key risks um, uh, increasing recognition that they exist and how to manage against them. Um, we're seeing um, the greater use of um, retirement-specific um, asset allocation approaches. So it could be you know, something like simple bucketing or more complex sort of bucketing arrangements uh, or um, you know, frameworks. Um, use of um, you know, other strategies such as you know, with income products or income layering. Um, so those um, frameworks are, are actually more common now than uh, in recent <coughs> times than they were in the past. Uh, we're seeing um, the emergence of uh, retirement-specific model portfolios, um, so not just uh, the common sort of model portfolio that's used for accumulation and decumulation. There are retirement-specific sort of model portfolios being used far more widely. Um, we are seeing um, advisors, you know, specifically, um, you know, uh, as you'd expect, manage, managing for you know, the current economic um, environment, you know, i.e. lower expected returns, well, lower expected income in, in particular, um, and potentially lower expected returns given how far markets have run in the, in the more recent uh, past. Um, uh, we are seeing quite a trend to, um, yeah, in some, some areas of, of advisors, taking clients further up the risk curve, you know, I, I guess following on from that previous comment about um, you know, investment returns. Um, so we've seen quite a bit of um, interest that we've not seen before in, in um, <clears throat> asset classes such as emerging market debt and high yield debt, which are more risky forms of, uh, of fixed income, um, but yeah, can generate some quite um, attractive rates of, uh, of income. Um, and then looking at the, on the advice side of things, um, uh, one thing we've, we've noted quite a bit is that um, there's quite a few retirees probably with sort of moderate to lower balances, but with a fair bit of complexity in their situation um, around Centrelink and estate planning, aged care, etc. Um, but they're actually having trouble finding advisors who are able to or willing to take them on. You know, obviously a large number of advisors, you know, have left the industry in the last couple of years and uh, you know, potentially a shortage of advisors going forward. So there is some, something of an advice gap that we've, we've noted. Um, and the final thing I'd say is, you know, those advisors, um, you know, um, uh, with, with, you know, with clients are, are actually spending quite a bit more time with them, you know, uh, you know, creating a more bespoke sort of outcome for them, spending a lot more time getting to know their detailed needs um, beyond just relying on the risk profile questionnaire. They're, they're spending a lot more time in, in getting to know their clients really well. So um, you know, that's probably a, a good outcome. Yeah, wow. Certainly a lot for advisors to consider when they're providing advice in this space. Um, Jeremy, Richard, thank you for joining us today and sharing your insights on this important topic. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, thanks very much. Now, remember, if you have any technical advice strategy questions, you can access the expertise of the BT Technical Services team on one 901 or send the team an email at technical at btfinancialgroup.com. 
And you can also join us for our fortnightly BT Academy technical webinars when we discuss all things technical and the latest regulatory changes. Our next fortnightly webinar, episode 37, will take place at 12 o'clock on Wednesday the 20th of October 2021 when Michael Tran, one of our BT technical consultants, presents Hoping for the Best but Expecting the Worst, Residential Aged Care Means Tests and Case Studies. This session focuses on building your knowledge about the financial aspects of aged care. To register for this webinar, head to www.bt.com au forward slash professional and follow the links to the BT Academy technical webinar series. You can also view our previous webinars and all sessions are accredited for CPD purposes. That's it from us and until next time, bye for now. BT Tech knows and now you know. Join us next time to keep ahead of the curve for strategy, regulatory and industry news. This podcast is being developed for financial advisor use only and provides general information only. It does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations or needs.